the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Welcome to the Wednesday, January 29th edition of Lifeline. Hope you're having a great week so far, halfway through here, huh? Just a couple of more days left, and we'll slip back on into uh, the weekend, Super Bowl Sunday this weekend. Go Niners! Yeah, Niners fever everywhere. It's not just hot weather in Miami that's heating things up. Um, it's the arrival of the red and gold, and we're gonna we're gonna make some uh, some new history here. I believe that's <laughs> what we're hoping for. At any rate, got time enough to talk about. 49ers later on. Right now, though, let's talk about important news of the day and its impact on your life. The number of deaths from the coronavirus now surpassing 160. Over 7,000 people in China have been infected with respiratory illness. Hardest hit region, of course, has been the Wuhan area, as you know, where allegedly the virus first began with patient zero. It spread, of course, to other parts of the world, including places like Japan and France and elsewhere. Several cities around China quarantined in the hopes of stifling the outbreak. Meanwhile, Chinese officials seem to be overwhelmed by the task, a near impossible feat, trying to build two huge 1,000-bed hospitals so they can treat coronavirus patients in only a week. Got to wonder about the caliber of the construction, if you can build a thousand-bed hospital from the ground up in seven days. But that's the task that they are facing. Um, This, of course, is a virus that is moving very quickly. There's a lot of information out there. Some of it is accurate, some not so accurate, some pondering whether or not we are on the cusp of a repeat of one of the world's most dangerous pandemics that claimed literally millions of lives clear back though in a very different time that of course was 1918 with the swine flu outbreak we're going to talk about that pandemic in a moment but first let's meet an expert who can set the record straight with regard to the coronavirus and what we need to be aware of dr jane orient is executive director of the association of american physicians and surgeons she has served in that role since 1989 she's also president of doctors for disaster preparedness and dr orient certainly if there was ever a potential disaster in the making this seems to be it First, give us your perspective in terms of of the way in which this sort of cropped up on the scene very suddenly and in a short period of time, virtually less than a month, has been able to get as far as it has. Is a lot of this due to this simple modern transportation that people just move around the world a lot and as a result are able to be easier carriers? Well, well of course, the world is much smaller now, so something that maybe starts out in a a meat market or seafood market in Wuhan, China, has already reached Arizona. 
I don't think it started just a month ago, though. There's evidence that it may have started as early as October, but the Chinese were keeping it under wraps until it really, really broke out to the point that it is a terrible disaster for China, which means it's really a terrible disaster for the world, not just for the spread of contagion, but because for all of the things that we're dependent on from China. I mean, if we've got more than a dozen cities locked down, nobody can go in or out of them, and many times people can't even get to work. Uh, what is going to happen to all the people in the world who are dependent on what they do? Yeah, we're already seeing some speculation on Wall Street that there could be a potential severe impact on the markets. And certainly, as you point out, Doctor, every nation that's dependent upon goods and services coming in and out of China will potentially be impacted by all of this. And when you hear things such as um, the Chinese officials in Beijing saying, well, we're going to quarantine an entire city. Historically, is there any strong evidence to prove that that is really an effective way of trying to get a handle on the spread of something like this? But it hasn't even been tried since the Middle Ages at the time of the bubonic plague. And at the time that they announced these repressive measures in Wuhan, five million people had already left. This is the time of the of the uh, Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, and 400 million people in China are generally uh, traveling to for friends and relatives at that time of the year, and uh, some of them just uh, left before the the quarantine went into effect. Uh, China may, may tell us how many people are confirmed cases, but that doesn't mean how many cases there are because the many patients, just like in the U.S., haven't been tested. They don't even have the materials for testing them. Wow. And there appears to be evidence, and maybe you can either confirm or deny this, there appears to be evidence that this is communicable even before the symptoms really start to appear. So that means that potentially anybody could be a carrier and completely unaware. This is a concern, and uh, there's no way, I think, to know whether it's possible or not. Uh, The symptoms may take several days to develop. Some of the patients never get a fever. They even die before they get a fever. And so the airport's checking people with fever may be missing a lot of cases, especially if the people are taking uh, Tylenol or aspirin to suppress the fever because they really want to get on that airplane. So... I don't think it's really going to work to quarantine these cities, but that's what that's what they're trying to do. And do physicians have an understanding at, at this early juncture as to just exactly what people are expiring from? I mean, in the severest cases here, where we've seen, you know, uh, uh, numbers of individuals succumbing to this, certainly uh, those that are either already with a pre-compromised immune system, the elderly, young children, is this pre- uh, principally a significant or severe respiratory disease that they essentially die from almost pneumonia-like impact on the lungs, or what exactly is it? Well, that is the biggest impact. It's, It's like the SARS epidemic in that respect, that the people may get a severe viral pneumonia, be unable to oxygenate their blood, need to be on a ventilator, and sometimes even that doesn't work. But a report in The Lancet, the British medical journal, about the 41 patients who were hospitalized in Wuhan is pretty frightening. It says that half of the people were under the age of 49. Fewer than half of them had some other compromising condition. 
and that while all of them had pneumonia, 12% of them had cardiac damage. I mean, there are viruses that damage the heart, so they may have had um, something, the equivalent of a heart attack as a result of this. And there may be many, many people who have a very mild case and symptoms that we don't know about, and that's good from the standpoint that they will, they will live, but not so good from the fact that it's harder to identify and track and contain the infection. Boy, and, and what I find of several things that you just said there are troubling, perhaps one of the most is that this is presenting with fatal consequences, not just in sort of the usual demographics that we see with respiratory diseases like the flu, for example, where it's people with compromised immune systems, the elderly, or very young, but even those that other otherwise would be considered healthy in that 20 to 40 age group are also at risk, and, and, and frighteningly so. I made reference early on to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that even at that time we saw a big concentration of individuals that were in that so-called healthy age range of 20 to 40. Yes, this is one of the, of the most frightening parallels between this and the 1918 epidemic. I mean, people are dependent on a technological infrastructure. And if we have a large proportion of the working population who can't get to work to keep the water flowing, to keep the sewage system working, to keep the electricity flowing through the wires, to drive the trucks to bring food to market, then many people are going to die even if they never come near the virus. So not only is there an increased risk there because of advancement, but there's another one, and I want to talk about this after we do a quick update on traffic, and that is something that's also uh, very unlike the 1918 flu pandemic, which eventually affected 500 million people, somewhere around uh, about a third of the world's population. 50 million ended up dying from the Spanish flu in 1918. That's worldwide. 675,000 here in the United States. And all of that, all of that before the advent of modern travel, which means that the Spanish flu was able to get around before the very first intercontinental airplane had ever took passengers from one side of the pond to another. I mean, travel in those days was by a steamship that would last on average two to three week voyage to go from Europe to New York, for example, well, what do we do in a modern day when a person can get in an airplane in New York and five hours, six hours later, seven hours later, find themselves in London or in Rome or in Paris? Frightening potential consequences. We're visiting today with Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness and there certainly, at least at first glance on the surface, seems to be a major disaster in the making here. More about the dangers of the coronavirus, comparisons to the 1918 flu pandemic, and most importantly, what you and I should be doing to protect ourselves and our loved ones. As our conversation with Jane Orient continues, Dr. Jane Orient, right after this. Get you an update on traffic here at 517 from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today with Dr. Jane Orient, 
executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. We're talking about the ongoing coronavirus outbreak that began in China, is now spreading around the globe. So far, and we have no idea how accurate these numbers really are, 7,000 reportedly sickened, 160,000 deaths. Now, uh, 160 deaths. Now, while that seems to be a, a significant number, doctor, I would wonder, in comparison to the last significant outbreak, uh, SARS of several years ago, number for number, uh, are those percentages way out of whack? Is that is that cause for panic in a sense, or not yet? I think it's still too early to tell. If you look at an interactive map on the internet, this is still in the exponential growth phase that it's still nowhere near leveling off in China. Uh, We have only five confirmed cases in the United States, but 150 people are quarantined because they don't have results of their test yet. This can only be done by the CDC. You have to send specimens to Atlanta, and they're not really allowing testing of people who don't have a, a good exposure history. So we really don't know. You know, and we may think that we have got a lot of preparations made. I mean, we spent $80 billion in the U.S. on preparations. But I think that we are really no better prepared than back in 1918 as far as the surge capacity for hospitals and for extra medical personnel or even for protective equipment. Already, medical supply houses are out of the basic essentials like masks and eye protection. Yeah, we've already had cases reported of doctors in China, for example, that have been treating patients and have succumbed to the illness as well. And and as I alluded to prior to the break, and you you touched on this as well, there's a lot that's changed since the 1918 flu pandemic of over 102 years ago. One of the big issues, of course, is the fact that we are a far more mobile world today. So when we think of nearly a third of the entire world population in 1918 um, who contracted the Spanish flu, 50 million of that 500 million dying, 10 percent, 675,000 of those deaths here in the United States, including, uh, as a sidebar, my own great-grandfather who passed away from the flu in 1918. I I have to wonder, uh, when you say that this is still growing and emerging and escalating, uh, how far out of control could this really get? Well, the the worst case scenario is really frightening to contemplate. One thing that hasn't changed since 1918, we still do not have a cure. We still do not have a vaccine. The people are working on it, but who knows whether we'll have a safe and effective vaccine in time. So we are still dependent on public health measures like tracking, diagnosing, and quarantine, quarantining people who might be contagious. And for this, it's, it's extremely important that people have accurate information about what's going on. And in China, they, they censored this and we don't know what the situation is there, but I'm not sure we even know what it is here. Well, and let's talk about that. From your perspective as a physician, we heard reported, for example, yesterday, the Centers for Disease Control saying that this is potentially very dangerous, 
but there was no need to worry for the public safety. But this was fast-moving and constantly changing. It, it seems to be a bit of a contradictory statement made by the CDC. And I, I heard, and I, granted we shouldn't be getting news from late-night comedians, but one last night said, uh, we're talking about this being a life-threatening illness and how quickly this is spreading, and yet the best advice that the CDC can offer is wash your hands, just like we would tell a five-year-old before lunch. How should we be preparing, and specifically for a region like the San Francisco Bay Area that has a significantly large Chinese population, and many immigrants to the San Francisco Bay Area are originally from China, maybe have even recently over the holidays visited China. How should we be worried about this? How should we be best protecting ourselves from potentially contracting this? Well, washing your hands is, of course, very good advice, but the... If you are infected, you're going to be touching surfaces all over the place, doorknobs, desktops, and so on, and the virus may remain infectious for as long as a week. It may be circulating on your paper money. Um, if you, It's good to avoid getting coughed on or sneezed on, but if somebody... On, on the bus or on the airplane and the air is recirculating has done that, you don't even need to be close. It could be transmitted in the aerosol, or if you touch an infected surface and touch your face or your eyes, you could be infecting yourself with it. So really you need to stay away from sources of infection and stay away from crowds, stay away from places where there has, has been cases. And in, in the ultimately people may have to stay home. And you should be asking yourself, can you? I mean, people in Wuhan are running out of food. The grocery stores are running out of food. Do you have enough food and medications and water and other essential supplies where you could stay home for a while and not be in a frantic crowd trying to stock up on things while the grocery stores are running out of everything? Wow. So we, we need to take this a little bit more seriously than, than at least so far what the CDC or even the WHO seems to be suggesting. And, and, and even they have been hesitant to really – I mean, I understand there's a level at which we don't want to create panic and so forth. But also, if we're very slow at pulling the trigger and responding to this, aren't we potentially setting ourselves up for disaster? Oh, yes, and for even more panic. I say don't panic, but go shopping. Be prepared – uh, don't wait until the last minute. Be aware. Uh, pay attention to the the, the news that, that the authorities are giving you. But also be aware that a lot of it's going to be up to you because we do not even have an excellent distribution system for passing out vaccines or, or drugs if we had them. Uh, well, actually, we don't. But for distributing the needed medical supplies, um, they may say, well, call for medical attention immediately if you have symptoms, but do you really want to do that? Do you want to be swapping the emergency room uh, where, one, they can't really do much for you except tell you to go home and drink lots of fluids, um, and where you might get exposed to something that you didn't already have? Wow. So it sounds like some of the advice of wash your hands multiple times every day, uh, you know, uh, if, if you've got a little bit of a cough, uh, you know, cover up and uh, as much as possible to try and avoid uh, crowded public places or at the very least, is it advisable? Do I see people running around wearing, um, you know, essentially dust masks? Are those really effective? Uh, probably not very effective at all that 
of the, the N95 respirator masks are more effective. I mean, if you have a patient in the, in the house, you might want to put a, a surgical mask or dust mask on the patient to collect some of the big droplets. But as far as protecting yourself against inhaling these tiny aerosols, the surgical mask, you know, with leaks around the side and so on, is probably not going to help you very much. Wow. Um, bottom line this for me, uh, you're talking to a large percentage of folks here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, if, if you were talking to a large group of your own patients, uh, kind of summarize, if you would, for us, doctor, uh, the, the sort of top shelf advice then that you would recommend for everybody to take. I think the most important thing is to go shopping and to buy the things that you're going to need in case you need to self-isolate for a period of time, like if there's a sudden outbreak in your city and all the emergency rooms are going to be swamped and all the grocery stores are going to have their shelves emptied, you don't want to be in a frantic crowd. Uh, You want to be able to stay at home with your family and stay safe until you can find out what's going on until things begin to settle down. Wow. Well, you know, I was going to say it's it's a new time in which we're living, but uh, ironically, based on our experience of 102 years ago, um, nothing new under the sun, as they say. My appreciation to Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, President of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Um, by the way, I'll mention that uh, Dr. Orient has her degree from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and has been in private practice since 1981. Thank you so much, Doctor, for the important and stern warning, duly noted. 5.32 from KFAX. Let's get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you look at a billboard, watch a TV program, pick up a copy of any popular magazine, there is one certain consistent thread, and that is that youth is idolized. We're all told to buy creams and potions and vitamins and so forth and get more exercise, all in an effort to not just feel younger, but to look younger, too. The problem is, as my grandmother would tell you, that time and gravity, nevertheless, (laughs) have their impact. And um, sadly, for a lot that reach middle age, there is not just the pressure that comes from um, Madison Avenue to, uh, to be and look and feel younger, but even the pressure of our culture and society in general, suggesting that maybe by the time a woman has reached her 40s or 50s that she's kind of done for. Time to bring in the 20-year-olds, right? Is that really true, though? Um, While there might be, from the secular society's viewpoint, a sense of loss of value um, of an individual at that age group, my next guest would suggest that for many, that can be just the beginning of a whole new look on life. Joining me is best-selling author Shelley Beach. She is the winner of a multiple awards for her more than 15 books that she has authored and co-authored. She is also co-founder of PTSDperspectives.org, a consultation service for those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, 
in um, every arena of life. And Shelley is going to be one of the keynote speakers at an upcoming conference that will be happening in February at the Mount Hermon Conference Center down in Santa Cruz called the Wonder Years Gathering. And Shelley, always a delight to have you with us. Good to be with you, Craig. I really enjoy the opportunity and appreciate it, especially on this topic. <laughs> you bet. And we're looking forward to your, your visit to the Bay Area. As I mentioned, you're going to be one of the keynote speakers at this event that, that really, I think, will help set the record straight. For a lot of women that kind of reach that midpoint in life, they've perhaps uh, had children, the children are off to college or married, so there's the empty nest syndrome thing going on, and and a lot of people yeah. that, that kind of engage in reevaluation of of the second chapter of or second phase of life at that juncture. And I guess the big challenge is that, wow, with all these negative messages going on in, in media and society around us saying, you're done, you're has been, you're, you know, yesterday's news, um, trying to gain a healthy perspective and and really look at that second phase of life with a sense of awe and wonder as opposed to, oh my goodness, I'm going to avoid enough makeup and to hide all this. <laughs> That's a challenge, right. isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you know, what's interesting is that um, my writing career in terms of writing books and, and as you mentioned, you know, a number of them and writing with other people, that actually didn't begin for me until I was about 45. Um, I had written prior to that, but I was writing um, in smaller, in smaller um, publications and because I, I was afraid to kind of take that leap into writing books thinking, well, that's for, you know, big time big time people who really know what they're doing. <laughs> and, um, you know, I took, I took my experiences in caregiving um, thinking, really, who am I? I'm just kind of a, a normal person who's taking care of parents and, and other people in my life and began writing books about those things and other things. And I, I was 45 when I, um, when I actually published my, my first books that, you know, went on to be more books. So, yeah, women in that second act of life, we we have a lot to offer. We have a lot of, of experience. We have a lot of, um, of skills and gifts and resources, and um, and there's so much. And I'm so excited to be part of this conference because um, it's just a really dynamic group of women with just so much to offer. And, and there's something to be said, as, as I like to joke, there's something to be said for having a little bit of gray around the temples. You know, uh, where, where we tend, because of the pressures of society and Madison Avenue, to be embarrassed by all of that and try to cover it all up and so forth. You know, I, I would I like to have a body of an 18-year-old again? Yeah, some days getting out of bed <laughs> gets a little challenging. Yeah. But in terms of the, the richness of the knowledge and the life experiences and, and, and the relationships, both on the, the horizontal plane and certainly on the the vertical plane, I wouldn't trade that for a moment, and I would lose all of that if I turned back the clock to my 18-year-old self. I know, you know, and, and it, it can encompass so many things. You know, I, I, have, I do have a lot of, a lot of um, experience in the area of caregiving, which I'll be speaking on at the conference, but recently uh, a, young, a young single mother came into my world, and uh, was it, we've been able to offer her help, but, you know, I, I found myself at the... Um, gas station with her teaching her how to use the tire pressure gauge and, you know, put air in her tires and, you know, some of the more practical day-to-day things of life that, um, you know, my dad taught me and, you know, those things come in handy and, you, and it, it's just, um, 
it's a privilege to be able to just, you know, the practical scale of things like that, to be able to, you know, take your skills and what you know, pass it on to the younger generation. And I think uh, the opportunity for women attending the conference here in February to be able to celebrate all those life experiences and um, get refired, rekindled, perhaps a readjustment even on, on attitudes to shed some of the pressures that come to us from society and to really understand and to embrace the second phase in life uh, called the Wonder Years as part of this conference, uh, critically important. The conference, uh, again, taking place this February in um, Mount Hermon there in Santa Cruz Mountains, and you can still get information uh, if you're quick about it and reserve a place by going to wonderyearsgathering.com. That's wonderyearsgathering.com. As we mentioned, Shelley Beach is going to be one of the keynote speakers at the event. And and I want to say as a sidebar, um, Shelley, for the benefit of listeners, um, some of your books specifically on the issue of caregiving um, have been critically uh, important for me in, in looking after my stepmother, um, my father's uh, anniversary of passing away was exactly five years ago yesterday, and I'm still kind of muddling through all that that means, um, having now uh, laid to rest both of my parents and having the responsibility of looking after my stepmother, who is facing some, some life challenges, and uh, your books in particular uh, on encouragement and insights in relationship to caregiving um, have been both insightful, uh, a very welcome relief <laughs> from a comedic standpoint, don't take yourself too seriously a viewpoint. And I want to endorse that to our listeners that uh, not only can they benefit from your, your books, but certainly benefit from hearing you in person at the upcoming conference. Well, thank you very much, Craig. Um, I, I thought it's important to take those experiences that we have and, and to um, use them positively so that other people can benefit. You can find out more about um, Shelley's writings online at ShellyBeachOnline.com. That's Shelley Beach with two L's, ShellyBeachOnline.com. The Wonder Years Gathering coming to Mount Hermon this February. Details on the web at WonderYearsGathering.com. That's WonderYearsGathering.com. And our thanks to award-winning, best-selling author Shelley Beach for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. We move to this segment on Lifeline, which is a bit of a talk about traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And I, I just want to come full circle to our conversation with Dr. Jane Orient that uh, some of us, including myself, found disturbing when you talk about some of the stark realities of what this coronavirus can be. Uh, let me update you. Um, there's word now out of the Mount Monterey County Health Department that four people in Monterey County have tested positive for the Wuhan coronavirus. Four people. We don't consider that the Bay Area quite, but right next to us. All of us need to be aware. All right, let's turn a corner here to a different subject matter, one that, uh, well, we're all familiar with. We've been watching uh, with, with uh, interest in grave disappointment, the Harvey Weinstein trial. Attorneys for the defense, of course, will most certainly lay blame at the feet of the women 
who came into his circle or perhaps allegedly his trap, but is it really so? Well, there's an interesting similarity between this story that's making the news every day and a story that most of us are familiar with out of Scripture, the story, of course, of David and Bathsheba. My next guest has written a new book called The Bathsheba Battle, Finding Hope When Life Takes an Unexpected Turn. And joining me now is author, blogger, and speaker, Natalie Chambers-Snap. And Natalie, great to have you with us. No, it's great to be with you today, Craig. Thanks for having me. Some might say, well, timely topic in light of what's going on in the news. And others might say, wait a minute, we've always understood in a general sense that Bathsheba, you know, she kind of uh, tempted David and David responded, (laughs) not really his fault. You, though, Mm -hmm. bring an entirely different take to this story. Tell me more. Absolutely. Well, you know, we tend to believe that King David was, as you said, a victim of Bathsheba, and that she enticed him and tempted him. But really, when we start examining the story between the two of them, and we really start looking at Bathsheba and and how different things happened in this story that many of us are familiar with, and when we understand what times were like back then for women— we see that actually she wasn't a victim, but rather a survivor of some things that had happened to her at the hand of King David. So it's sort of turning the tables a little bit and really um, examining what really happened in this story so long ago. And and let's kind of get to that core. Um, What really happened? I mean, we know at one point that Bathsheba was bathing, She was seen by King David, looking from his window or his balcony, and he eventually summonsed her to come up to the the kingdom, the castle, rather. Um, Right. Pick up the story from there. What really, in your perspective, happened? Okay, well, and this is also just in really diving deep into the scripture and studying uh, commentary by theologians and, and So this isn't just my opinion. This is just like researching and really diving into the specifics of this story. And you're exactly correct. Usually people believe that Bathsheba was up on a rooftop. Nowhere does it say that she was on a rooftop. King David was on a rooftop of his palace looking down, and he happened to see Bathsheba bathing. You're correct in that. She was uh, following the ritual custom in uh, bathing after her menstrual cycle. And she was doing what she should be doing. Back then, they didn't have indoor plumbing, of course, so she was in the courtyard of her home. Uh, Usually, that was marked off by some foliage, trees around. So there usually was some kind of privacy. But since King David was up top on top of his palace, he could look down and see her. And Bathsheba was a very beautiful woman, so he did send a messenger to inquire about her identity. Now, here's the funny thing about that. We don't really know if perhaps maybe he did know who she was because uh, Bathsheba's grandfather and her father were very trusted advisors to King David. And she was also married to Uriah, who was his uh, number one in command, uh, fighting in the battle, which really technically he was supposed to be fighting in as well, because back then it was customary for kings to be fighting alongside their men in battle. So already King David wasn't where he should be, and that oftentimes leads us to making not-so-great decisions, and that's exactly what happened here. He wanted to find out who she was, even though I think probably deep down he did know who she was, and then he summoned her to the palace, as you said. So at this point, uh, there are many theologians that believe that he actually sexually assaulted Bathsheba, because 
back then, if the king summoned you to the palace, you pretty much had to go. You didn't have much choice in the matter, and the consequences were not great if you did refuse to go. So she goes to the palace, and once there, uh, Scripture says that they just had sexual intercourse. Nobody knows if it was consensual, but my guess is probably not. Uh, She was summoned there, and she went there because she had to. Unfortunately, soon after, she found out she was pregnant. And this is where David kind of starts to go off the rails. And I always like to pause here at this point when I'm telling this story, because I think it's easy to vilify King David. And I think we need to remember that everybody makes mistakes. And this was definitely not one of King David's best moments, most certainly, but it did not define him, and God still used him. So it just illustrates how God will use anyone. And he still was after God's own heart. He just made some very grave errors. So at this point, David starts to panic because he realized he's going to get caught. And so what he chooses to do next is invite Uriah back home from the battlefield. And he pretty much, for all intents and purposes, tries to get him intoxicated through feasting and lots of wine and then sends him home to Bathsheba where he's hoping he will sleep with his wife except for what he didn't bank on, was the fact that Uriah was a man of integrity and honor and refused to go home and sleep with his wife when his men were fighting. So King David tried that not once but twice, and he realized that Uriah was not going to go home. So then he had to go to Plan B, and Plan B was to send Uriah to the front lines of battle, which of course means he's going to die, and that's exactly what happened. So now we have Bathsheba, who was summoned to the palace. She had to go. We don't know if she was sexually assaulted or not, but many theologians believe she was. And now she's a widow. So after a a proper grieving period, then she married King David. So thinking through her eyes again, now she's being forced to marry the man who brought on so much heartache in her life. And then we see later... Nathan, who was a prophet and advisor to King David, went to him and pointed out the error of his ways. And this is one thing I always love about David is his humility. And he realized what he had done, and he was very, very humble. But yet there's still going to be consequences to our sin and our choices. And that consequence was that the child that Bathsheba was carrying would not live. And now we have Bathsheba suffering the death of her first child. And what I love, though, is that it doesn't stop there. There is redemption because she later gives birth to King Solomon, and there are some other things that we see her emerging later in Scripture in First Kings 1 that we can talk about, too. But that's pretty much the beginning of her story. That's where we're introduced to Bathsheba in Second Samuel 11. And we usually hear her portrayed as an adulteress, but really, I'm not so sure that was the case. So there, there are really many degrees in which she is a victim of her circumstances here. And of course, ironically enough, even as we compare it to modern events going on in the news, this, this is a story that is filled with elements of, of shame and embarrassment. Um, and all that that surrounds something like this, and as you as you really suggest, is the primary theme in the book. And let's be clear for listeners that the story of Bathsheba is really sort of setting up an example that is relatable in 
modern culture in a lot of respects. But really, you hone in, Natalie, on helping the reader discover where and how to find hope and healing when life takes those unexpected turns, when the set of circumstances overwhelm you that's beyond your control. Absolutely, yes. Because here's the thing. Bathsheba had a choice to make. Uh, She could have chosen to be a victim and then defeated by this because she certainly had several tragic things happen to her. And I also want to point out that a lot of, most of these tragic circumstances she experienced, most of this trauma she experienced were through no fault of her own. She didn't have much choice in the matter. And so that is certainly applicable to many people today. And even if you do have choice in the matter, trauma is trauma. There are lots of people who have experienced trauma. Um, In fact, you know, there's new research out that shows about 50% of the population has experienced trauma. I think sometimes we don't really get the full understanding of what trauma is. Trauma certainly has different degrees to it, but trauma can be experienced when we go through a divorce. It can be experienced um, when we lose a parent. Uh, there are different levels of trauma. It's not just the big things we hear about that we, we often think are trauma-inducing. So when we go through things like Bathsheba has gone through, then we have a choice to make. We can choose to be a victim and be defeated, or we can choose to be a survivor and pull through, and not just survive, but then also thrive. Because ultimately what God wants us to do is He wants us to pick up the pieces of our lives and, the, and learn and gain wisdom through the hardship, and then turn around and help someone else do the same thing. And as we discover, I think, through this most notable story in Scripture, um, times when one's life takes an unexpected turn, not only unexpected, but sometimes unavoidable turn, um, we can be left feeling hurt, disappointed, um, in many ways perhaps stuck as a victim of circumstances. The new book, The Bathsheba Battle, Finding Hope When Life Takes an Unexpected Turn, really helps women find healing and hope when things in life just simply don't go as planned. The book is newly published by Abington and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Natalie's website, nataliesnap.com. The Bathsheba Battle, Finding Hope When Life Takes an Unexpected Turn. Author Natalie Chambers Snap. Natalie, thanks so much for the time. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's uh, pause here, get you an update on some headline news, but first a look at some headline traffic.